0: A great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars.
1: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, peace be with you. Very happy to be with you for these Advent days tonight, tomorrow night, and Wednesday night. Um, Especially tonight on the feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, who is the patroness of our diocese, the patroness of the Americas, and we have the image here, which uh, was revealed to Juan Diego on December twelfth, fifteen thirty-one. As we gather to celebrate the Holy Eucharist around the altar, we celebrate the coming of Christ among us as he proclaims his word to us in scriptures, as he feeds us with his body and blood and sends us back out into the world as a sign of his presence. Let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare to celebrate these sacred mysteries. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters,
2: Lord, have mercy.
1: Lord, have mercy.
2: Christ, have mercy.
1: Christ, have mercy.
2: Lord, have mercy.
1: Lord, have mercy. mercy. Glory to God in the highest, and on Earth, peace to people of goodwill. We praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you. We give you thanks for your great glory. Lord God, heavenly King, O God, almighty Father, with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let us pray. O God, Father of mercies, who placed your people under the singular protection of your Son's Most Holy Mother, grant that all who invoke the blessed Virgin of Guadalupe may seek with ever more lively faith the progress of peoples in the ways of justice and of peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever.
3: A reading from the book of Revelation. God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant could be seen in the temple. A great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child and wailed aloud in pain as she labored to give birth. Then another sign appeared in the sky. It was a huge red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven diadems. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in the sky and hurled them down to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman about to give birth, to devour her child when she gave birth. She gave birth to a son, a male child, destined to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and His throne. The woman herself fled into the desert, where she had a place prepared by God. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have salvation and power come, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his anointed. The word of the Lord. You are the highest honor of our race. Blessed are you, daughter, by the Most High God, above all the women on earth, and blessed be the Lord God, the Creator of heaven and earth. Lord, Christ, Lord, Christ. Your deed of hope will never be forgotten by those who tell of the might of God. Lord,
2: therefore the child to be born will be called holy the son of god and behold elizabeth your relative has also conceived a son in her old age and this is the sixth month for her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible for god mary said behold i am the handmaid of the lord may it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: So the plan for this evening is just to offer a little homily now in the context of this Holy Eucharist, which we celebrate together, and then give a longer reflection after Mass. But I think we have to be done by 10 for sure. Um, Actually, that's past my bedtime, now that I'm no longer at the age I was when I first showed up here. And this is the second Mass that I've been to today. I went to Mass at midnight at the cathedral. And um, it's a very different cultural experience, as you may know. I got there about 10 o'clock, and I got there in the middle of about a four or five hour um, serenade and matachinas and um, just all kinds of activity, song, um, the mariachis. And uh, it was just very, just this outpouring of emotion and of of faith and of love um, for this image. It's very impressive. And I'm sitting up there with the rector of the cathedral, uh, Father Jesus Belmontis, and he leans over to me. Because all the time that we're there, all these hours, and all during mass, there are people coming in the main doors of the cathedral, going to the left down the aisle, going behind the altar, past the image of the Virgin, and back out the other side. And that went on continuously, hour after hour. And the uh, rector leaned over to me, and said, 50,000 people have come through here, and Ross Avenue's closed, and um, Meadow Creek is not. It's just a different cultural experience. You know, it's a different, um, I didn't grow up with this story. I grew up with the story of Our Lady of Lourdes and Our Lady of Fatima, and you know the, what was the third secret, and you know all this mystery about that, and the need to pray and to repent. And I knew nothing of the story of Juan Diego, and what happened between December 9th and December 12th, 1531. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that later on after Mass. And this is really kind of the backstory. The Gospel is really the backstory to this. It is a little seed planted that continues to bear fruit in history in just marvelous and unexpected ways. Um, and Pope Francis has said on a number of occasions that we live not in an age of change, but rather in a change of ages. Um, that we are entering into a whole new time in history. And the Annunciation is a definitive change of ages. It's called the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son, uh, prepared for ages without end. And why that was the fullness of time lies in somewhere in the mystery of God's mind and heart. And as an event in history, it is a one-time, unrepeatable event 2,000 years ago. And yet it is a mystery that continues to unfold in our lives as Christ continues to come to us. Um, and give us in every moment the fullness of grace that we need to live this moment. And one of the little things I was thinking about and looking at Juan Diego, and I'll tell you a little bit more about this later on, is that Mary and God, through Mary, singled him out, because he didn't think that he was worthy of this, but, but he was singled out. And in some way, each one of us is singled out for a very particular mission and we need to pay attention to that. No matter what our age, no matter what our circumstances, we still have work to do, and the sign that we still have work to do is that we're alive and that we're not yet finished in this world. Um, And so in the fullness of time, the angel comes to Mary, and there is a before and after to this moment. She's doing one thing one moment. She's living an obscure life in an obscure village, barely a village, in an obscure part of the Roman Empire, the dominant world power, the next moment she hears, well, in English, she hears, Hail! We don't know what she heard in Aramaic, but full of grace. And the Lord is with you. Luke tells us, and Mary must have told Luke in the first place, she was greatly troubled and wondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said God often says, either directly, or in this case to an angel, do not be afraid, Mary. He knows her. He knows her name. He singled her out. And it's a very a personal message. You have found favor with God. Before Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. This is one of the most pictured scenes in, in our history, this interaction between you know, ancient times, medieval times, modern times, what happened in this moment when the angel comes to her. And the angel gives a lot of detail. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David his father. He will roll over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. All this detail. And after she asks the question, well, how can this be? I'm a virgin. He just piles on more. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The child will be called Holy, Son of God. And then he gives her a sign, a concrete sign, something that she can pick up on very easily in this cascade of words, your cousin Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. She's in her sixth month. Nothing is impossible with God. And Elizabeth will repeat back these words of the angel, affirming that she is herself pregnant, and she praises Mary's trust in what was spoken to her. The moment your greeting sounded in my ear, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who trusted that the Lord's words to her would be fulfilled. This is something also for us, because the same mystery is revealed to us in the fullness of time with the fullness of grace. In that moment, in the moment that she said yes to the angel, she had no concept of how this would unfold, where it would lead her. She had to deal, first of all, with the immediate consequences. There may have been a good reason to take a trip to see her cousin, just in practical terms. Rumors could very quickly start in this kind of situation, and a child born six months after they came to live together? Hmm, people, they know the math. She had to talk to Joseph about it, who also had a message in a dream. And prior to that, he had formed his own plan, a good plan, he thought, a compassionate plan on how to deal with this divorcer quietly. Let the man who's responsible for this take responsibility for it. No stoning, please. Joseph must have had to believe her as she told him the story of what had happened. Um, And so he also accepted responsibility for that because within the Jewish tradition, for him to give the name to the child is for him to accept the child as his own. All of this unfolded step by step, day by day, Luke tells us twice, because Mary must have first told him, that she kept all these things in her heart. She reflected on them, attended to them, paid attention to them, pondered them. Sometimes we may live in a a universe that's too distracted now for us to ponder much of anything, how this mystery is unfolding in our own lives. She sets a model of discipleship for us. One time when a woman cried out to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you, blessed are the breasts that nursed you. He said, no. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and act upon it, which is all of us. And he comes to us now in this moment as we celebrate the Holy Eucharist at the end of 2022, already the liturgical year 2023. Celebrated today in this world so full of difficulties, a world that is quickly passing away. And we look for him here. We look for him in the presence of the poor also because this is where he's told us he will find us. He will find me in the Eucharist, you will find me in the poor. As often as you did it to one of these least ones, you did it to me. Our forebears of faith, and, and we, also it's important for us to remember our forebears in faith. None of us got here on our own. The fullness of grace is present to us now in this Eucharist, in every Eucharist we celebrate, and in every way in which we encounter him in the needs of others as the Lord sends us forth as tabernacles of his presence in the world. Uh, For as often as you cared for one of these least ones, you cared for me. Let us turn to our God with our prayers of petition, confident that he will always give us what is best for us.
2: For the church, that she will be a hopeful sign of God's presence in our midst, as Our Lady of Guadalupe was then and is today we pray to the lord,
1: lord our
2: for the people of the americas that they may be generous in sharing god's gracious gifts and resources we pray to the lord,
1: lord our
2: for expectant mothers in our communities that they be supported in their physical and spiritual needs we pray to the lord,
1: lord our
2: for the people of all saints parish that we who gather to celebrate the feast of our lady of guadalupe be inspired to bring compassion and hope to those in darkness and despair, we pray to the Lord.
1: Hear our
2: for the sick, especially Joey Zapata, Steven Kaczynski, Richard and Selma Paragoy, and for those listed in the bulletin, we pray to the Lord.
1: I hear our prayer.
2: For those who have passed from this life, especially Janet Clark, Maria Konsevich, Ed Monahan, Grace Chang, and for those listed in the bulletin, and for the intentions of this mass, for the good and faithful of all saints, and for the repose of the soul of Raul Cortez, and for the intentions of the Bazaco family, we pray to the Lord.
1: Prayer. Lord, hear the prayers of your people gathered around this altar during this Advent time. Open our hearts to receive the gift of your presence, hear our petitions, and answer them according to your will, through Christ our Lord. Amen. fruit of the vine and work of human hands. It will become our spiritual drink. Lord, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sins. Pray, my brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Father Almighty. Accept, O Lord, the gifts we present to you on this feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and grant that this sacrifice may strengthen us to fulfill your commandments as true children of the Virgin Mary through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. Lift up the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, to praise your mighty deeds in the exaltation of all the saints, and especially as we celebrate the memory of the Blessed Virgin Mary, to proclaim your kindness as we echo her thankful hymn of praise. For truly, even to earth's ends, you have done great things and extended your abundant mercy from age to age. When you looked on the lowliness of your handmaid, you gave us through her, through her the author of our salvation, your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him the host of angels adores your majesty and rejoices in your presence forever. May our voices, we pray, join with theirs in one chorus of exultant praise as we acclaim. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You are indeed holy, O Lord, and all you have created rightly gives you praise. For through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power and working of the Holy Spirit, you give life to all things and make them holy Look, we pray upon the oblation of your church and recognizing the sacrificial victim by whose death you will to reconcile us to yourself. Grant that we who are nourished by the body and blood of your son and filled with his Holy Spirit may become one body, one spirit in Christ.
0: May he make our us an eternal offering to you so that we may obtain an inheritance with your elect especially with the most blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, with blessed Joseph, her spouse, with your blessed apostles and glorious martyrs, and with all the saints on whose constant intercession in your presence we rely for unfailing help.
3: May this sacrifice of our reconciliation, we pray, O Lord, advance the peace and salvation of all the world, Be pleased to confirm in faith and charity your pilgrim church on earth, with your servant Francis, our pope, and Edward, our bishop, and Gregory, our auxiliary bishop, the order of bishops, all the clergy, and the entire people you have gained for your own. Listen graciously to the prayers of this family whom you have summoned before you. and your compassion, O merciful Father, gather to yourself all your children throughout the world
1: all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. At the Savior's command, informed by divine teaching, we dare to say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done
2: Saw for each other the sign of peace.
1: Have mercy
0: on us.
3: and has lifted up the lowly.
1: Let us pray. Lord God, may the body and blood of your Son, which we receive in this sacrament, Reconcile us always in your love. And may we who rejoice in Our Lady of Guadalupe live united and at peace in this world until the day of the Lord, the, the day of the Lord dawns in glory, through Christ our Lord.
0: Amen. We wanna thank the bishop for leading us at, uh, during this Mass. This is the first part of tonight's activity. So after the final blessing, We will just wait for a few minutes for the bishop to take off the mass vestments so he will come back for the beginning of our Advent mission. So once again, thank you, bishop, for leading us at this mass.
1: Thank you, Father Javita. The Lord be with you. And with yours. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
2: Amen. Go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life.
0: Good evening. I want to thank you for making yourself present for this great night. It's a great night because we are going to experience the wisdom of a great guy in our midst, somebody we know too well because all Saints was his first assignment as a Catholic priest from 1982 to 1986. So he is someone who is well known here, one of the people who really planted the mango tree that we are reaping the fruit at this moment. And it is a thing of honor that we approached Bishop Kelly and asked him to come over to All Saints to help us with three events within six weeks, and he didn't say no to any of them. He did not. He was here to lead us in our Mass for the All Saints. He was here again to celebrate our soiree with us on November 5, and tonight he is here to lead us in a three-day Advent mission. We are so grateful that he said yes to all these, like Mary, who said the great yes and brought Christ to the world. We are happy that our auxiliary bishop said yes and is gonna share his experience with us for these three nights. Just for us to know a little bit of whom he is, He was born, according to him, in the middle of nowhere (laughs) in Lomas, in Iowa. And he was ordained as a priest of the Diocese of Dallas on May 15, 1982. Was ordained as auxiliary bishop for the Diocese of Dallas on February 11, 2016 at the Cathedral of the Virgin of Guadalupe, Dallas, here. Bishop Kelly has held great positions in the Diocese of Dallas. Sometimes when I look at him, I feel like without him, I don't really know where we will be in the Diocese of Dallas. And I'm being sincere about it because everything kind of centers around him and he has been a great support, both to the clergy, the laity, and more especially for some of us who came from outside to serve the Diocese of Dallas, he has been to go person. So I look at him as the life wire of the Diocese of Dallas, in any way you look at it. He has served as the the chaplain of University of Dallas. He has been the pastor, actually the founding pastor of St. Gabriel, the Archangel Catholic Church, McKinney, Texas. He has been the vicar for clergy since 2008 till today. He's still the vicar for clergy. And presently, since 2016, Bishop Kelly has been the auxiliary bishop of the diocese, the vicar general of the diocese, the moderator of the career, and like I said, the vicar for clergy. So you can understand when I say that he is the life wire of this diocese. And we are so glad to have him in our midst. And so my dear friends, I invite you to listen to one of the pillars of this parish and of this diocese and as as he shares his vast experience with us. So it is my pleasure to introduce in our midst Bishop Greg Kelly, the Auxiliary Bishop of the Diocese of Dallas. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Father Javita. I feel like I should quit while I'm ahead. (laughs) One of the things I was thinking about, uh, you know, just thinking about tonight especially was and this is the place where I really learned to be a priest. Because I got here about a month after I was ordained a priest. I was ordained as Father Javita said on May 15, 1982, at my home parish in Colorado Springs, Colorado, Sacred Heart. Bishop Shapey at the time just would let us go and be ordained wherever we, we had a connection, not necessarily at the cathedral. And so I came here on June 16, 1982, at about 3.37 in the afternoon, more, more or less, somewhere around there. And, uh, but I remember the very first person I met, um, somebody had a white truck that helped me bring my stuff from the seminary to here. The very first person I met was Father John Gibbons who had been at my home parish in Colorado Springs, Colorado for 14 years. He was an obligated Mary Immaculate. He had some family here in the parish and just happened to be visiting. And I walked into a completely empty office. The, the old, Before everything was renovated, my office is over there um, in the old part of the building and there was nothing in the office except a a telephone and a little white, or a little turquoise envelope sitting in the middle of my desk with my name on it. And it was from a young woman named Teresa Polzer, who was the spiritual director for the singles group. Would I, you know, would I be willing to be the, the spiritual director for the singles group? I said, well, sure, I, I can do that. I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> but also, not too long after that, I had a spiritual director over at the seminary, who said, whenever people ask you to do something in the parish, just say yes. You know, don't say, well, I don't know how to do that, or I'm not comfortable doing that, but just just say yes. So Susan Dorfmeister, who I saw here somewhere, she asked me to be involved in the youth ministry, so I said yes, although I was really nervous at being involved in the youth ministry because I just, it just made me nervous. And Or Mary Lou Kaup and Phil Kaup asked me to work with a divorce and separated group, and I said, sure, I'll do that. And um, you know, I just learned a lot how to, how to do things just by, by saying yes. I didn't have any experience at it. I didn't know whether I was any good at it or not, but I thought, well, I'll just say, I'll just say yes. And at the time, Monsignor Raphael Camel was the pastor the whole time I was here, and I learned a lot just from his, his just way of being a pastor. And we never had any kind of formal mentoring meetings or anything like that, but I knew if he had the 6.30 mass, he ate breakfast at 7. If he had the 9 o'clock mass, he ate breakfast at 8. So if I had something to ask him, I would just have breakfast at the same time. And um, I always made sure I made the coffee because he made horrible coffee. <laughs> Somebody one year had given him some spiced tea, and he was frugal, he didn't want to throw anything away. So he put a little bit of the spiced tea in the coffee just as a way of getting rid of it, and it tasted horrible. So. Uh, I just made the coffee. And then, um, the other thing I just remember is walking down the aisle that had the rust-colored carpet at the time, just a sense of joy. You know, finally being a priest after six years, and in the last couple of years, some difficulties that, you know, it took a while to kind of work through and just kind of finally being at the beginning and i just really learned how to be a priest here in this very spot here and i'm so grateful to you who are still here after 40 years and many others who have come after that um, along the way so what I, want, what I was thinking about doing for the next several nights and i really wanted to think about our lady of guadalupe i mean this is a, i didn't i did not even know the story when i was here Uh, It really wasn't until I became vicar for clergy and I started being a substitute. I tried to learn some Spanish so that I could help out in Spanish-speaking parishes and just to begin to learn this story and going to the cathedral several years in a row and just seeing this outpouring I mean they really they close down Ross Avenue they close down Crockett Street you know they have police that are there and they have you know it's like a festival and they have the dancers and the music and you know it's lucky that it's a an urban area where nobody's yelling at them for making too much noise at 1 in the morning but and that happens in some other parishes around this time of year but um it just is just something that just really evokes this this deep affection. Which I really feel when I, when I listen to them, it's like, it just it really affects you because it's, you see this just, and really, I mean, they're just standing up there singing and just serenading her and just talking to her, you know, almost as if she's there, and they, because they really believe that she's there with them, that she is a mother to them, and that she walks along the way with them. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about that story uh, tonight, just to reflect on it a little bit, because it also represents um, a change in the age. I mean, there are some things that happen around that time in the encounter between the Spanish as, as they come to the New World beginning in 1492 with um, the Columbus coming across and then um, the, the Aztec civilization that they meet, that they encounter, and there's, there's this horrible, violent clash between the two. You know, just a really bloody bloodbath and there's disease and, and the, so there's kind of a decimation of the, of the native population. But also on the part of the Spanish um, and the Spanish missionaries in particular, um, you know just like how do we how do we evangelize this people? How do we proclaim the gospel to these to these people? Um, how do we do that? And really being at kind of a loss uh, to know that and kind of living also you know under the shadow of um, especially the first Spanish government there, that was very violent towards the, the the native population, and and in fact, some sometimes the priests, you know, the Aztec priests would say, because the Spaniards would complain about the the, the uh, human sacrifice, I mean, these horrible human sacrifices, fifty thousand people a year, to, in order to keep the universe going. That was their thinking, and. Um, but they would say to the Spanish, "Well, you you sacrifice people just for personal gain. You slaughter people just for their money, you know. So how are you different from us?" And so they really kind of talked past each other. So I want to talk a little bit about that story tonight because her, the, the appearance of Our Lady at Tepeyac between December 9th and December 12th, 1531, which really was in the change of the calendar from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar, I think in the 16th century, it really happens at the winter solstice. I mean, it's at the darkest time of year, so it, you know, more or less December 21st, December 22nd. So I want to talk a little bit about that tonight. I gave, I gave you a copy of the... Uh, the image, which just you know, kind of gives you a little brief history of the apparitions, but also um, kind of explains the, the symbolism of the, uh, of, the, um, of the icon. And uh, we'll come to that a little bit later. So I wanted to do that, do that tom- tonight. Tomorrow night, I want to look a little bit at the first coming of Christ in the flesh, or as the prayer, which we'll start with tomorrow night, when he came in the lowliness of human flesh. It's the, it's the uh, preface for the Advent, uh, uh, for the Eucharistic prayer during Advent. You know, it comes in, uh, in, in the lowliness of human flesh. And then on Wednesday, to look at the future coming of Christ, and how do we prepare for that today, whether it comes, you know, someday, or whether it comes, you know, a, a second from now. We really have no idea. Um, so that's kind of a plan for, the, for the, three, the three days. I was also trying to think of a, a couple images that have been sticking in my head for the last couple, well, one for a year, because I, went, I go golfing with my cousin once a year or so when I have to, because I'm a horrible golfer. I hit, a, I hit an 84 one time, but I had to quit after 12 holes. But um, I was playing with my cousin and a friend of mine, and the, it was on a par three and you know, my friend you know, goes to tee off and he, he dusts it into the ground and the ball just goes rolling off a few steps and he said, oh, hit the big ball first. I said, what are you talking about? So, you know, a little golf ball sitting on the big ball, the earth. So, I never thought of it that way, but that's, you know, it's. but I, I, what struck me about that was the, the lack of proportion between those two balls. You know, a little tiny golf ball sitting on a tee on the earth, and it has become, in my mind, an image for the lack of proportion between the human mind and the divine mind, that we have very little understanding of of the mystery of God, and that we have been given just a little slice. In fact, the feast day on Wednesday night is the Feast of St. John of the Cross, and he talks about how we have to keep digging into the riches of Christ because it's like a mine, where you keep digging in and digging in, you keep finding fresh veins going off in different directions, and we never get to the end of it. So um, we have to keep digging into the mystery of Christ, in whom are hidden all of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. So this image, the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, is um, she's the bearer of the Advent mystery because at the very center of the apparition, although sometimes I think this gets lost in popular devotion, is Christ himself. She comes to reveal the face and the voice of Christ, um, the savior of the world, in a way that is accessible to the the people of the new world. um, Her face is a Mestiza face, is neither Spanish nor Mexican, but it is a mix of the two. And that initial mix oftentimes happened in the violence of rape and other things at that corner, but in her, they meet um, in in the peaceful face of the Mother of God. And she speaks to Juan Diego in his native voice, Nahuatl. And she speaks to him. I was thinking of the, uh, you know, there's the image of the, the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of stars on her head, and she's kind of way up there, but Our Lady of Guadalupe, she meets Juan Diego face-to-face, you know, as one person to another. It's a very intimate meeting. And it also represents a change of ages because it leads to the really the the vast evangelization of millions of people um, over the next 10 years. So the Spanish of the late 15th century, though, as they come to the New World, they've also experienced a little bit of a renaissance in their own life because for 700 years, on the Iberian Peninsula, they have been battling against uh, the Muslims. Um, they have uh, Jewish people have lived in their midst, particularly with the Muslims. They were more tolerant of of Muslims than Christians were. But in 1492, at the very beginning of 1492, uh, so for them, that that's not so much about the discovery of America, at least not initially. But it is about finally uniting the entire Iberian Peninsula under the Catholic Kings, the monarchs uh, Ferdinand and Elizabeth. And so they feel, they have this feeling that this is our time. You know, we, this is, you know, this is, it's our time to, you know, that uh, we're the people of this age, we're the ones who are going to begin now to expand, we're going to to, um, proclaim the gospel in a better way than anyone else has ever done that. Um, At the same time then, the Aztecs, before they meet them, are also feeling like a certain age is coming to an end. You know, they have been the dominant power um, in in Central America for centuries, I I don't remember how long, but they also have this feeling from their own priests, from their wise men, that this age is kind of running out, and a new age is coming. This is before the Spanish even arrive on the coast. Um, You know, they see different kinds of omens, they see earthquakes, uh, different things that are happening along that way. Um, and so they begin to feel, you know, our time is over, and they think of a time almost like being a jar of water that you it, you know it pours out, and once the jar is empty, it's just empty, and there's no going back. So when the Spanish arrive, they begin to see this as as a fulfillment of their um, of their predictions, of their prophecies, um, and so the world that the Spanish meet there, though is a very highly developed world. I mean, they are experts in architecture, they're experts in science, they have calendars that are more accurate than the European calendars, Um, they are able to read the skies, they have a very kind of a poetic, um, intuitive way of looking at the the world, Um, very highly symbolic. They, um, in philosophical and theological beliefs, they don't think the spoken word is sufficient. And so they look for images, songs, and flowers, and a lot of those will appear on the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um, They see that music and flower also testify to the transitory nature. Everything passes, um, and yet they leave a trace. And the knowledge of the truth comes not primarily through philosophical or theological reasoning, but through inner experience, through intuition. Um, they have a public school system. All the, all the Aztecs kids go to school, um, and the father has the primary responsibility for overseeing the education. Um, the world of the Spanish conquerors they come out of a, 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 a background which is much more focused on the individual. The Aztecs are focused on the family. In fact, they think, you know, that when a when a child descends from the sky into the mother's womb, it's a faceless reality until it is kind of formed in the in the family. It's why they're able to to sacrifice people because. It's the collective, it's the family that's most important. Um, the individual is not that important. For the Spanish, it's the individual that are most important. There was a saying at the time that Spain was a kingdom with 20 million kings, that everybody was an individual who had importance to them. Um, and also, as I said before, there was at the, finally a unity of church and state after 700 years of war. And their mode of expression was much more imperative and direct. They wanted to define things. They look at philosophical, c- canonical, theological ways of defining things, um, much more abstract and um, speculative. The truth exists in the mind, and the mind's ability to understand it. So when they meet each other, um, they're really not able to talk to each other even, because they kind of talk past each other. Um, and also the fact that um, you know, between 1519, when Cortez arrives on the coast, and 1521, when he arrives in the Valley of Mexico, and there's this horrible battle. at, What is the name of that place? Tez. Tluc- I can't say the words very well. Tez. Tezcallofle or something like that. Um, I don't think it's in your little handout either, so that's not going to help you. Um, there's really kind of a destruction of the of the Aztec civilization, and also the Aztec religion, because the Spaniards feel like you know you know, as you can understand, they have trouble looking past the fact that these people offer human sacrifice. So if they're offering human sacrifice, there may not be much else about their culture that's good. Um, And so they had a difficulty accepting that, and they feel like there's a need to destroy, um, to completely eliminate the Aztec religion because of that. But this is also very disheartening um, for the Aztec people, who feel like this is even worse than being defeated politically and economically, to be defeated, in a sense, theologically. And so between 1521, um, if it decides to defeat um, of the Aztecs in the Valley of Mexico, and 1531, there's a whole decade where the Spaniards try various methods of evangelizing, and they have some success, but not very much. In fact, they send over what they call Los Doce, the Twelve Apostles. They find the most uh, intelligent, brilliant scholars in Europe, and because the first bishop of... uh, Mexico, Fry, um what is his name, Zumuraga, oh. writes a letter and they, and they send back the 12 most brilliant because they think we'll, we'll convert the, intelli- the intelligentsia and through them we'll get to the people. But they can't, they can't understand each other. And um, on the one hand, they think you offer human sacrifice and the Aztecs say, well, you, you sacrifice people just for economic gain, you know, so you're, you're violent also. And so the first bishop of Mexico um, even wrote a secret letter asking for help. Uh, they, they had some people who said, well, let's just get close to the people. Let's just um, you know, adopt their dress, try to understand their language, their symbolism, and get close to them. And there was a man named Fray Pedro de Gante who um, was able to have some success with that. And I think he was also the one who baptized uh, Juan Diego in 1524. So there was some success. In fact, you know, Juan Diego was on his way to Mass when the lady calls him aside and t- wants to talk to him. So, um, catch up with my notes. So you have a little bit on the page there, you have an outline of what happens between 15... I don't know if I have those pages up here. Can I borrow somebody's pages? I don't have the little one. Oh, here, never mind. It was filed under miscellaneous. <laughs> so on the one side of the sheet, it gives you kind of an outline of the of the apparitions. Uh, there were five in total, four to Juan Diego, and um, one to his uncle, uh, Juan Bernardino. And so the primary source for this is a work called the Nikon Mopohua, I think that's how you say it, which was written in the 1540s by a man named Antonio Valeriano, and it's a long, maybe a 10-12 page account, you know, relying on uh, Juan Diego himself and other sources to kind of put together the story of what happened over these three days. And so, as you'll see, in the first apparition, Juan Diego is on his way to Mass, and he's passing by a mountain, Tepeyac, which was a sacred place for the Aztecs. It was the the, the pilgrimage site for their female deity. And um, he hears a feminine voice asking him to ascend. And one of the things that uh, the translator said that the the Nahuatl way of saying things was to pile on titles, pile on images, one after another. And so the, the translation that I read tries to adopt something of that. He hears a feminine voice. And it says, there he heard singing on the little hill like the song of many precious birds. When their voices would stop, it was as if the the hill were answering them. He said to himself, by any chance am I worthy? Have I deserved what I hear? Perhaps I'm only dreaming it. Perhaps I'm only dozing. Where am I? Where do I find myself? Is it possible that I'm in the place our ancestors, our grandparents told us about in the land of flowers, in the land of corn, of our flesh, our sustenance, perhaps in the land of heaven? What's interesting about all these things he puts together, and not all that detail is on the sheet, that just gives you a little bit of a summary, but um, that he sees that there is a connection and a continuity to his own ancestors. So he's born in 1474, so they know nothing of the coming of the Spanish yet at all. And so he's thinking that all those people he knew back then are somehow involved in this mystery. And so even though there's this violent rupture, in his mind, because he's adopted the Catholic faith, there's still some connection to his ancestry. So, and again, the the lady picks him out, picks him out personally, um, doesn't make a mistake about it. But goes and because Juan Diego will argue with her later on, you need to find somebody uh, better, you know, somebody who's more more well spoken. Because I'm, uh, we'll come to that in a minute. He has some very interesting ways of speaking about himself. So. The woman sends him to the Bishop fray Juan de Zumarraga in the city of Mexico. You know, it's always the bishop's job in these uh, kind of uh, stories to be the person who no, I don't believe that. You know, you need to do better than that. I need a sign. And, you know, let's, let's talk about this some other day, you know, and I'll pray about it. So the bishop, um, but I mean, at the same time, though, this bishop has been anguishing over the situation in the new world, like how do we evangelize? How do, and also anguishing over the violence of his own people. In fact, he writes a letter to the Pope about 1529, and he has to smuggle it out of the country because they don't want him talking to anybody back there about anything that's going on in the new world. He has to, he has to smuggle it out. And the, um, the native people see that the friars are different than the conquistadors, but they still belong to the same people, and their god is still the god of the conquistadors. And so, after um, he, goes in, he goes in the morning, he waits all day to, to see the bishop, comes back, the, same, the second ambition is that same, that same day, that's on the sheet also, and so he says to her, tells her what happened, he says, So I beg you, my lady, my queen, my little girl, to have one of the nobles who are held in esteem, one who is known, respected, honored, have him carry on, and take your venerable breath, your venerable words, so that he may be believed. I'm just a man from the country, I'm the porter's rope, I'm a back frame, just a tail, a wing. I myself need to be led, carried on someone's back there. Where you sent me is not my place to go or stay, my little girl. And so, no, she said, I've I've called you personally. I have any kind of number of people I can ask to be messengers, but you're the one. So she points the finger back at him. So he goes back to the bishop on uh, the third apparition. He goes back for a a second interview. And the bishop asks him for some sign um, because he feels like there needs to be some verification of this. And and Juan Diego is just overjoyed because, first of all, he knows it's a real thing. And he says, well, I'll get you a sign. She'll give you a sign. And so he's overjoyed by that. And um, the bishop has him followed to see where he goes. Um, I wonder if I would do that. I might. (laughs) But um, somehow um, he loses him. Or they 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 lose track of him. He doesn't do anything to evade them, but they lose he he, they lose track of him. So they go back and tell the bishop he's lying. That uh, you know we we followed him. We found out he's just lying about the whole thing. And so um, the next day. and she says, come back tomorrow, and you may take the bishop the sign he has asked you for. With that, he will believe you, and he will no longer have any doubts about any of this, nor will he be suspicious of you. So on the fourth apparition, there, there's a day skipped because his uncle, Juan Bernardino, gets ill. And so um, he, wants to go, he wants to go into the town to, to find him a priest to celebrate the last rites so he can be uh, you know, prepared to die. So he thinks he can walk around the other side of the hill and just evade this lady, you know, as if she, um, as if that were possible. And so um, she finds him, and he tells he tells um, tells her what he, he tells her what he's doing, and she says to him, these are probably the words that are quoted most often in this apparition. Listen, put it into your heart, my youngest son, that what frightens you, what afflicted you, is nothing. Do not let it disturb your face, your heart. Do not fear this sickness or any other sickness nor any sharp or hurtful thing. Am I not here? I who have the honor to be your mother. Are you not in my shadow and under my protection? Are you not the source, am I not the source of your joy? Are you not in the hollow of my mantle in the crossing of my arms? Do you need anything more? And so he, they have these reassuring words that, he gives, that she gives to him, and then she sends him up to the top of the hill, and this is the middle of wintertime, and the frost is heavy on the land, and he goes up there, and there's all these beautiful flowers growing, different varieties of Castilian flowers from Spain and other places, and he loads a bunch up in his tilma and takes them back down, and she, she arranges them, which I think is a beautiful thing. You know, she just takes and personally arranges the flowers in his tilma, and sends him on his way. And so the servants now are not too open to him being there because he's been such a nuisance. And some of the friends of those he gave the slip or thinks he gave the slip and was lying about the whole thing, have heard about it and so they block him. And they wanna see what he has in the till. And whenever they look inside or they try to pull something out, there's just a, a flat image in there. They can't see anything and they just see something that looks like painting. And so when he's finally able to give them to the governor, you know the story, he calls him the governor, but all these flowers, Um, spill out, and on the tilma is this image here, um, which is unlike anything from that period. Um, I once went to a talk where Monsignor Eduardo Chavez, who was the procurator for the canonization process of Juan Diego, back in the 90s, 2002, he showed other images of artwork that was that was common to that time of of, uh, of uh, in Mexico in the 16th century, and there's there's nothing close to the complexity of this kind of image, and, you know, nothing that has that kind of iconography, and so. He takes the bishop, the bishop believes him, he takes him to the place where the apparition happened. The fifth apparition takes place with the uncle, because he, um, she reveals herself to him with the same imagery. Um, he's, he he's well at the time that she tells Juan Diego not to worry about it, and reveals to Juan Bernardino what her name is, the perfect virgin, Saint Mary of Guadalupe. So I want to just go through a couple of the images here, and a lot of these are called out on the sheet as well. But it picks up, it really is a melding of um, Spanish and Aztec imagery. And so in a sense, there is a um, a coming together and an enculturation of the new people of Mexico in a way that only the genius of God working out of a a much bigger ball than the big ball could possibly come up, and Mary is his his emissary. And so, And this side of the sheet kind of does, you know, because there's a lot of images that there's an Aztec god of the sun, um, and she stands in front of the sun, so which is an image that she is more powerful than the sun. She stands on the moon, which is the the female god. Um, She's supported by an angel who has a hand on one side of the of the tilma, which is the color of the earth, and the other side, which is the color of the sky. but she also has her hands folded in prayer, which means that she is not herself a god, but she prays to the god. Her eyes are downcast, Her um, the parting of her hair is the symbol that she is a virgin, and the fact that she has the uh, the um, the dark ribbon above her womb is a sign that she's with child. And so the very center of the image is Christ himself, and she comes to bring people Jesus Christ, the risen Savior of the world, in a way, and in, in, with imagery, that they are able to receive. Um, there's also, way up here, it's hard to see on the small image, but right up here at her neck is, is a cross. Is, and it's the Spanish cross that was, was often on the sails of the Spanish ships as they came across the Atlantic to the New World in the, uh, in the 16th century. Um, her garments, the color of the garments are um, the color of royalty and the pattern of the stars match the, um, the galaxy as they were on that day in 1531. They reflect the same arrangement of the stars that are there. Um, what are some of the other? She stands among the clouds representing her divine origin. There are three different kinds of flowers on, her, on the vesture. I had a larger image here that kind of gave some additional detail on the flowers. I mean, the other thing which is so striking, going to the cathedral last night, is just mounds and mounds and mounds and mounds and mounds of flowers, of roses, you know, that are just brought and set, some in front of the Virgin, some wherever they can put them. You know, I was tempted to take some home, but I didn't think that would be right. <laughs> but, um, but, I mean, they were just, just a, uh, an outpouring of um, so there are three different kinds of flowers on here. This had a larger image I didn't have a very good copy of, but on the tunic, there's kind of a heart-shaped flower, and that's referenced on the left, on the, yeah, it's an eight-petaled flower, which is kind of in the symbol of a heart, which is the, um, no, that's, um, there's an eight-petaled flower, which is down, um, which is a symbol of the four directions of the, of the east, north, east, south, north, South, east, west, and also the hill, which represents the uh, the deity, and the um, there's a four-petaled flower, which uh, leaves on her tunic, symbolizing to the Aztecs that it's the fifth age. So, as they saw the, the an age coming to an end, this is the fifth age beginning. Um, let's see if there's any other ones that I missed. The other thing, and just noted on the left-hand column, is that scientific analysis that was done in the 20th century shows you can see, I think, 13 different people reflected in her eye. And the tilma maintains the temperature, uh, about 98 degrees, the temperature of the human body, and it's um, on a, a type of uh, material, magay mag- I think it's called, which typically has a shelf life of about 20 years. And the um, it's Ayate fiber, approximately, tw- it can last about 20 years. And yet, after almost 500 years, the tilma does not show even the slightest sign of decay. And the way in which the color is applied um, is unknown to science, uh, being neither animal, vegetable, or mineral dyes. And um, there are no brush strokes indicating that the tilma is not a painting. Um, so this was something in which, um, again, where the fullness of time which unfolded with the coming of Christ 1,500 years ago, and the Annunciation is a prelude to this um, because it is a... And Juan Diego shows himself to be a man who is obedient, who is humble, but does exactly what the Virgin tells him to do. If the if Virgin tells him to go and talk to the bishop, he may argue, but he goes, and he stays as long as he needs to stay until he finishes his mission. Um, and so... In the ten years following the apparitions of Our Lady of Guadalupe in 1531, uh, nine million of the native people, the Aztecs, were baptized. They even had to shorten the baptismal rite in some places to accommodate such large numbers. Um, Another thing is she calls herself a mother to all in the land, and uh, it is a coming together of two cultures, um, but at the time the land is the whole continent of the Americas, North America, South America, there are no borders. So she's the mother of the Americas, uh, the mother of the New World. Um, And that she opened up a new era of evangelization in the New World, enculturated the gospel in a way that only God could do, neither Aztec nor Spanish, but a mixing of the two. And in some way that violence there was redeemed in, in the image, um, because these things come together in her face, in her voice, um, and it, be, it leads to an evangelization of the Americas. And it really is a change of time, a change of eras uh, for the Spanish, for the Aztecs, and for us. And as Pope Francis has talked about different times um, us living in not just uh, an age of change, but a change of ages, because he also feels like there is some need for the church to be made new in this era. How do we evangelize um, the world now? Uh, Bishop Burns in calling for there to be a synod, you know, had had something of that in mind also. How do we proclaim the gospel now um, in this culture? And uh, there was a priest from North Dakota, Monsignor John Shea, James Shea, I think, who wrote a book called, Um, Christendom to Apostolic Age. You know, preaching in the age, there's a subtitle I can't remember, but his thesis also is we're coming out of a period where Christianity is, is inculcated in the culture into a time more akin to what the original apostles preached in the Roman Empire of that age—that uh, you know there is a people who are, the gospel is unknown, um, it's unloved, or there is violent, violently violently opposed, um, or even people who are indifferent to it. Um, and so, what are the ways of helping the gospel get into people's daily lives get to reawakening, uh, reawakening the faith, and. Um, Pope Francis also wrote a, in a, his, one of his, his first documents on the, um, the joy of the gospel, where he talked about Evangelii Gaudium, because um, this is also an image of resurrection, of death and resurrection, of something coming to new life. He wrote that Christ's resurrection is not an event of the past. It contains a vital power which has permeated this world. When all seems to be dead, signs of the resurrection suddenly spring up. It is an irresistible force. Often it seems that God does not exist. All around us we see persistent injustices, evils, indifferences and cruelty. But it is also true that in the midst of the darkness, something new always springs to life and sooner or later produces fruit. On raised land, life breaks through stubbornly yet invincibly. However dark things are, goodness always reemerges and spreads. Each day in our world, beauty is born anew. It rises transformed through the storms of history. Values always tend to reappear under new guises, and human beings have arisen time after time from situations that seem doomed. Such is the power of the resurrection, and all who evangelize are instruments of that power." So this is an instrument of the power of the resurrection, the dying and the rising of Christ, you know, proclaiming the face of Christ, showing the face of Christ uh, to the people of the new world. And Pope Francis goes on and says, a little bit later in that world, that faith also means believing in in God, believing that he truly loves us, that he is alive, that he is mysteriously capable of intervening, that he does not abandon us, and that he brings good out of evil by his power and his infinite creativity. I mean, this is part of an expression, a beautiful expression of the infinite creativity of God himself and also the freedom of Mary's heart Born of her own immaculate conception, born of her personal obedience to the the Father in every moment of her life, where the grace of God continues to shine forth from her. Um, In some ways, we also live, you know, in the midst of a change. Where he says, not an age of change, but a change of ages, and with massive displacements of people due to war, weather, economic desperation a climate of uncertainty politically, economically, a breakdown in systems that people just depend on, take for granted, whether that be air, you know, water, transportation, COVID disruptions, all the kind of things that we've lived with over the last several years, a decline in the number of people actively involved in their faith. At the same time, all these little things continue to take root and grow in other places. Um, growth and movements of evangelization, associations that are on fire with love for Jesus. You know, what, new growth thing will, what new thing will come out of our, of our era? Um, perhaps we live just before you know, another event like this. Who knows? But even if that's not true, it is for us today to know how the Lord has singled us out, um, the way he, he singled out Juan Diego for some special mission. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that you know, tomorrow night and the, and the night after. Um, you know, the first coming of Christ and the con- kind of conspiracy of grace that is at work in the life of each one of us, and the future coming of Christ, how do we prepare for that? Something which seems to be, you know, an abstraction or something to yawn at, or, well, we can't do anything about that today, so let's go have another cup of coffee and, you know, see what's on TV. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, life goes on in these circumstances, and yet we live between the two comings of Christ and also the ways in which he continues to come, you know, personally to us sacramentally, how he comes to us in the faces and the needs of the poor or other people who come to us seeking a companionship for us to accompany them along the way. So I'd like, we'll reflect a little bit more on that in the next couple of nights. So I'd like to take maybe just three to five minutes if there are any questions or thoughts that you would like to, to share. And then just end with a, with a prayer. Maybe three, three questions, just because it's close to 8 o'clock, and I think we promised to be done by 8. Except I, the homily went longer than I thought, so I thought it took a while to land the plane. <clears throat> if not, we'll just conclude with a prayer to Mary, or a prayer of Mary, which is the prayer of the church. The question is, what is the status of the church in Mexico? Um, you know, is it similar to here, with people being, I guess, being indifferent to the faith? Um, I don't know if I know the answer to that. I mean, I haven't really looked into that recently. I know that, you know, around the time of uh, of um, the feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe every I year, mean, there's just this massive, you know. And does that constitute fidelity or not? Uh, you know, it's hard to, I mean, but there's still that lively sense of her presence and love. In the lives of people, um, back in October, somebody gave me a, um, a YouTube video of something similar in uh, Peru. You know, they have massive prof- profess- processions in the streets. I think eight to ten million people go to the shrine in Guadalupe over these days, over the time of the novena. There's always a novena. You know, between the fourth and the twelfth of uh, uh, December, and then, the, you know, the, the Mass at midnight on the last day, yeah. The question is, what is the biggest thing we can take away from uh, the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe? Um, I think one is just the uh, her closeness to us, and the purity of her, of her heart is, is, a, is a model for us to make the same kind of response ourselves. I think she, because sometimes we can kind of put her on a, pe- a pedestal and say, "Well, you're special. You had special graces. You had," and but I think to say she's a model for discipleship for us to hear the word of God and act upon it. And that's how Jesus praises, you know, her, uh, that she conceived Him in her heart before she conceived Him in her womb. That she was a f- one who faithfully. Listen for what God um asked her to do and did that um, I'm also just thinking, just actually, I didn't plan on talking about just you know what is the way that God singles each one of us out because each one of us has a special mission, and the very last reflection on Wednesday is a kind of reflection on that by um Saint John Henry Newman, a nineteenth century English cardinal but I mean, there really is a sense of having a personal vocation. I have something to do that only I can do. And to, to ask her to help us to see that and to choose it. I think that's what the gifts of, the, of confirmation are for also, you know, to have the wisdom and knowledge to see what it is that I, I need to do in each moment, to choose it, and to hang on to the choice when it gets difficult. Because I think, you know, all three of those, uh, we can go wrong either not seeing it or not wanting to see it. Um, to once we see it to not wanting to choose it and then once we actually do choose it not to not to follow through on it you know with, with that kind of faithfulness yeah and just one more then we'll just end with a prayer just a, okay. just, just a, just a minute just a minute because it represents <laughs> so many people have it I mean I'm I'm not one to judge, but you'll have violent gang members, and they'll have a huge tattoo of her on it. So it's it represents something greater to them than just faith. I think I don't know if that's. Yeah, I think much. that's I think that's true. I mean, it's, it's like with any kind of popular devotion, it's always straddling the line between. Uh, I mean, I was, I was watching the Matacinos last night. You know, coming down, and they, they, they these very beautiful choreographed dances. I wonder, but if you don't know anything about the history of that and the way that that's an expression of devotion, I mean, you think, well, this, this does look, it could look pagan, even. Um, but, I mean, there's not, but, yeah, you know, I think that with any popular devotion, I think there's that tendency, it's really walking that line between, you know, faith and superstition, or faith and other things that could be, you know, gang-related or, or political. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's end with a prayer. This is a prayer that's always said standing, so let's stand. This is a prayer said every evening. It shows up in the Gospel of Luke, um, and it ends with a doxology. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to say a line, and if you would just repeat each line after me. They're short lines. I think we'll do do great. But let's just pray in silence, first of all, to know that we gather in the presence of the Lord as his people um, and that he is among us. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Savior. For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. servant. From From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. name. He has mercy on those who fear him. him. In every generation. generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has has scattered the proud in their conceit. He conceit. He He has cast down the mighty from their thrones. And has lifted up the lowly. together. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hope to see you tomorrow night. Bring a friend. Go straight home.